She works at Signum University. Oops. Uh, and uh, the Mythgard Institute. Uh, that's how we got to know each other. Um, so Maggie, thanks for coming on. Sure. Glad to be here. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, your work with um, Signum so far, how you kind of discovered that fascinating world um, and uh, what you're trying to do with it? Sure. Um, I'm a recent add-on to Signum and a late discoverer of Signum uh, and Mythgard. Um, so I'm originally from the U.S., but I live in Wales in the United Kingdom, and I studied abroad here when I was 20 and just loved it. So I came back to do a master's in Arthurian literature, so studying King Arthur in North Wales. It's pretty great. Um, I was mostly comparing medieval texts to modern texts. Um, I was super influenced by Mary Stewart and Susan Cooper when I was growing up. Mary Stewart wrote The Crystal Cave. It's um, the Arthurian story, but from Merlin's point of view. And it's fantastic if you're an Arthurian folk that likes the historic side of things, because it's very much a Roman Britain. Um, and Merlin has some magical powers, but he's much more the, the wizard in the hill as opposed to the magical guy with stars and moons on his cap, you know? Um, Susan Cooper is, is my, my homegirl. I read those books, The Darkest Rising Sequence, when I was eight. Um, it's a series of five books. I'm already getting off topic. Sorry, Wesley. <laughs> <laughs> it's a series of five books. Um, they're written like 1968 to 1975 or so. And uh, she wrote the first one for a newspaper competition, but then just found that the characters were sticking with her and she kept writing and then discovered that she had this inherent mythical core running underneath the story of Arthuriana. So one of our main characters, spoiler alert, uh, ends up being Merlin. One of the characters is a legitimate son of Arthur, moved out of time. And it's all this like battle between light and dark and good and evil, um, pre-Harry Potter type stuff. And two of them take place in Wales. So I read those books when I was eight and was just obsessed. So went on family vacation when I was 15 to Wales, loved it. Studied abroad when I was 20, loved it. Moved back for this master's, loved it. Stayed for a PhD, so got my PhD <laughs> and quite a different topic. Um, was looking at book-to-film adaptation, which I'm sure we'll get into, so I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But um, I was I finished my PhD in 2012, so I've been living in the UK and working in education and international education. So I have two kind of hats of promoting Welsh education um, and teaching in London and teaching at Signum. Signum happened. Um, randomly, I was in Spain uh, learning Spanish for two weeks because that was how I wanted to spend my summer. And about nine people sent me this job description for a preceptor at Signum. And they said, do you know this place? Why don't you know this place? You should know this place. Yeah. Uh, and I got chosen for an interview. And it was an interview, I think, for about a minute and a half. And then it was one of the best conversations any of us had ever had that was in this interview group. Because, it was, you know, when you find your people, yeah. just like I started spouting off some of the research I'd done. And I just haphazardly fell upon some of this stuff. And it was Philip Pullman. It was Harry Potter. It was um, Twilight the Vampire stuff. Yeah, I know it's a little bit not Signum, but still, we'll talk about that another time. Um, and Lotro. So I actually did a research space at Lord of the Rings Online because my cousin happens to be a game designer there. That's how that link happened. So there was just all this stuff that we were pulling in. Uh, and apparently Corey was just losing it during the interview and people were telling him to calm down in the side chat box. But uh, so yeah, so I got the post there. I guess it was cool. about a year and change ago. 
Um, and I've been doing things quite outside of my expertise, but it's been fun. So I did um, science fiction one and two, and now I'm doing Lovecraft class. And then this summer, um, co-teaching a new lecture that we're writing right now um, with Gabriel Shank, Dr. Gabriel Shank, on Inklings and King Arthur. So. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah. I I um I had a conversation with uh, Gabriel. I don't know a few months ago now. Um, and I might well have another one since he's based in Oxford. Uh, that's kind of the world, you know, of, of the Golden Compass. But since you bring up uh, Wales, I know that Pullman moved there and, and grew up. Some of his formative, like, growing up time was spent uh, somewhere in Wales. Uh, mm. I, have you read, by any chance, his shorter book, The Broken Bridge? Um, I have, and, and he does still live in North Wales. He has a home on Anglesey, which is where I live. Oh, a fellow of Bangor University. So Bangor's where I did my master's and my PhD. And he was made an honorary fellow, I don't even remember when, 2009, 2010, somewhere around there. And he comes back every now and again to give lectures. And they're super, super academic. Like, yeah. you want him to talk about, you know, the, the world that we know from Golden Compass. And he does a bit, but he's more talking about, like, the, the physical particles of dust, you know? So he's talking oh. about dust. But it's super intense, and I, I was fascinated by it and understood about 10% of it. Oh, man, that's yeah. something I, yeah, I, I think the more that I read these, uh, er, the earlier books, um, and he's sort of just, like, just giving hints of what dust is and what it does and things, um, the more interested I think I am to read more of his, like, academic work and academic work that might have been done about his 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 books since you know i i'm just now kind of getting into that side of the um the literature i guess um so to know that he's around and giving talks still and stuff that's that's really exciting that's great um, the last week he did was quite some time ago but i mean i don't i don't think i'd finished my phd i think it was like 2011 oh wow okay yeah because i know well so supposedly he's now like very deep in writing these new fiction books you know so I hope that he, you know, makes proper time for doing that sort of thing. Um, but so uh, living in Wales and um, sort of having been drawn there by reading um, things like The Dark is Rising, The Crystal Cave, um, how, how do you feel like the experience of reading and the experience of traveling and like learning about a place how do those two kind of fit together and how does one sort of lead you into the other, do you think? Oh, there's so many answers to this. I mean, why do people go to the Harry Potter world in Florida? Why do they, you know, check out the studio exhibit in London? Like there's, and that's just Harry Potter. People flock to Tolkien's grave and, and leave totems. Uh, there's a real desire for fans, no matter what you're a fan of to connect with something real from that space. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people go to grave sites, they go to childhood homes, they go to Dollywood, whatever their thing is, and really like to have that personal connection geographically. So there's a whole other, you know, discussion here, I think, about fan tourism and stuff. But for me personally, it was so much in my head. It was so much a part of who I was as a human and as a fangirl and later on as a researcher and, you know, just as an enjoyer and all of this, that being able to set foot in the real place to make my world become like that, it was just incredible. So, 
I remember my first trip out there. This is me name dropping, so sorry, but prepare yourself. But my first trip out there, a really good friend of mine that I've been going to summer camp with since I was little, she worked at this group in Boston called Revels. They put on concerts and stuff every year outside of Boston. And Susan Cooper was very involved in Revels. So she said to Susan Cooper, oh, I have a friend who's obsessed with your books. So completely unsolicited, when I was 15 years old, I got a package from Susan Cooper that had an itinerary of what she does when she goes to Wales, which roads she takes, where she stays, her oh, home phone number and her email address, and a copy of The Grey King, which is my favorite one of the series, signed for me. So like that actually initiated this amazing relationship that hasn't been frequent, but has been very meaningful of once or twice a year touching base with Susan Cooper and saying, it's your fault. I'm still here in Wales. So, um, yeah, so the, I mean, I remember being 15 and, and planning out the Wales part of this family vacation and reading the section that described where I was in the Dozeny Valley or Aberdeen or Toen. Um, going up Cataridris and then looking at it, you know, and, and now I've been teaching these classes. So I did a traveling Arthurian and fantasy summer school and we're reading out a section about St. Cadvin's church as we're standing in St. Cadvin's church and that ability to connect with a real place. And like, I just went down to Oxford for the Tolkien exhibit and, you know, mm -hmm. be able to, to touch base with that stuff in real life. Just, I don't know. It makes it so much more, I don't know. I'm just going to leave it there. It makes it so much more. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think one element of that for me has always been uh, with studying language, too. Um, I don't know much about the Welsh language, but uh, I, I know that it was pretty inspiring for Tolkien. Mm -hmm. uh, like, he sort of took Foundation bits and pieces from lots of languages, right? But but that was one that he really particularly seemed to admire and, and be uh, attracted to. Um, I wish I knew more about Pullman's study of language and sort of like where he comes from with with respect to that side of kind of the fantasy world building um, language creation thing. Uh, he doesn't seem to do as much of that, but he does have sort of like distinct, you know, peoples and they do sort of have different um, ways of speaking and, and um, even words for things in some cases. Um, so do you do you teach like any bits of Welsh language as well as a way to sort of like deepen your kind of understanding of of this place and and its sort of inspiration and, and all of that? Um, very basically, I'm not fluent in Welsh by any means. I, I can order a pint and, you know, navigate the bus or something and that's about it. But the pronunciation, I think, is sometimes half the battle. And there is a full page and a half in The Dark is Rising that describes pronouncing Welsh town names. Um, so again, as a 15 year old, that's how I taught myself Welsh. And then I ended up hanging flashcards all over my house, which my parents hated of Welsh words. Um, now it's more in context. I really want to be sure the students and, and people who come to travel with me and learn with me are respectful of the culture they're in. I have such a true love for Wales now that there's that element of it, but also being able to pronounce things around you without making a fool out of yourself is a real win when you're visiting a foreign country. Um, so yeah, I definitely teach certain phrases, you know, the hellos and the what time is it and the weather and whatnot. Um, but the words that are from Welsh mythology, the Mabinogian and whatnot, that's woven throughout um, all of the literature I've been mentioning, you want to make sure you're able to pronounce that stuff. And, and it's quite fun. It's it's a very different sounding language. It's it's a, Celt a Celtic language. So it doesn't sound like the romance. It's it's a little bit more like the hacking and gacking of Gaelic. <laughs> ah, cool. 
I, I've heard that Gaelic is super hard to learn. Um, again, I don't know much about these things, unfortunately. But I did, I did study Spanish a lot. And that was part of the experience of that for me was like, you know, going to Spain. That was a big sort of thing that made me really want to become better at the language. Um, and I don't know if, you know, in lieu of that experience, I'm sure that like getting a letter from a great Spanish author would have kind of done the same thing, probably. Right, it would um, that fire. Yeah, it's like that that sort of inspiration, but more than that, like the the thing that gives you sort of the motivation to, to put in the work necessary to really learn. You know, I think those are slightly different things, maybe. And maybe the one sort of leads you into the other one, but uh, but yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a it's exciting to to hear that you're kind of um, doing courses like in this place and and giving people tours and and kind of putting together so many uh, of the elements of what makes uh, you know learning fun, but also like something that you want to sustain and really like delve into. Definitely. Well, and that's the stuff that got me going when I was younger, you know, so being able to be on the other side of this now is phenomenal. Um, and that is definitely something we're developing with Signum and Mythgard. So there, like, here's my advert, there will be traveling schools and traveling weeks in the future. Um, but I don't know what that's going to mean yet. You know, I very much would love to do a Tolkien week and we do the major sites or a fantasy week and we tie in all of the fantasy writers that we're talking about and we'll see but yeah. um, and some of it might have credit attached to it with signum so we'll see watch the space yeah yeah they so they have tons of irons in the fire right now but that one i think really lends itself because if there's a weakness to online learning it's this kind of you know abstraction from reality right but that's sort of what you get in books anyway. So it's just kind of more in your face maybe, but then it's like, so how do you kind of reconnect to, um, you know, what do you do with this stuff? Like how do you sort of enact it in the world? Well, you know, getting to do awesome field trips and study abroad seems like a really, a really right. good way to do it. Uh, that's cool. I'm glad to hear that. I, I was talking to Gabriel Shank about that a little bit, actually, like, you know, maybe we should, do a kind of, you know, exploration of, of the Oxford of Lyra and Will, you know, and like, where are all these places? And I'm sure that there are tours like that out there already. So, yeah. yeah. And I mean, of course there are, but I like the fact that this, this would be a tour. You'd see the sites you'd want to see, but we would have it in such a literary context yeah. that you, it wouldn't just be the, the five second Hollywood tour. It'd be no, open your book. Let's read this section. Let's talk about where it came from. Look at that wall. And you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, Particularly, I think the uh, the way that Pullman seems to just sort of like steal things from his own time as a student in Oxford um, gives you it's almost like the way that Lyra, you know, in um, infiltrates the retiring room. Like you go into this place that's sort of hermetic and, and you get to see what it's like um, from the inside because um, those are, you know super elite institutions but you know she's just like running around <laughs> climbing up uh and running over the rooftops and stuff and you sort of like vicariously get to do that um so you know something like that would be would be really fun um how i guess um in uh in terms of like an oxford setting um with the um the different worlds that are there like they even talk about that in the story, right? Lyra sees this like stone that her friend had carved his initials on or something. And she's like, 
how is that possible? You know, so I wonder, like, is there such a stone? <laughs> like, how how deep does this go? Uh, it's and which it's something that in reality, which bits are founded in fiction. Yeah. Navigating that line. I love it when authors take things from real real life because it becomes a pilgrimage location. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, it's something that um, Pullman, he seems to push a lot harder with that. I, like Tolkien, you know, creates a completely separate world, Middle Earth, uh, although it's maybe like in the past of this world in some vague sense, right? Um, Lewis, of course, has like a, a parallel reality where time flows differently and stuff like that. Um, but Pullman seems to really insist like, you know, Will's world is our world. You know, it, that's that's the real like primary world. And and it is, you know, in some way uh, interacting with all these other, you know, parallel universes and stuff like I wonder um, if that's maybe part of the uh, the like the problem, I guess, that some people have with Pullman, like he doesn't fit neatly into uh, a genre of like high fantasy um he he seems to want to promote himself as a a realist author but that's not terribly convincing for most people either you know <laughs> like it seems like he kind of creates this problem for himself though by by the way that he sort of structures his uh his um literary world um i, I don't know he he's a tricky he's a tricky uh nut to crack i guess um is why, all so you know, why it appeals to so many audiences like when I'm, I'm lecturing about the film adaptation, which I'm sure we're about to talk about, uh, when I'm lecturing about that, and, and you start to get a, a feel from the room of, of who has experience with this, what are you familiar with, um, I totally just lost my train of thought. Nope, gone. <laughs> oh. No, tell me the last thing you just said. Well, well, just how difficult it is to kind of... Categorize. Categorize. Yes, um, that most of them haven't read it. So being able to say to them, read it, and if you like it at all on your first attempt, go for round two, because it's one of those that I pick up so much more every time I read it. And if you read it to children, they're going to so enjoy it because it's a wonderful adventure and it has the darkness that makes literature really interesting. But if you're a grown-up and you read it with a different set of eyes, you get so much more out of it. So I, I love the levels that he presents. And that, that's a skill. I mean, that's not something you can learn. That's the ability to to write for children, young adults, and adults, and have it seem totally appropriate to each of those age brackets. Yeah. Very impressive. Yeah, maybe that's one of the things that was harder about the adaptation to, like, when they went to, you know, film, adapt the Golden Compass. Um, it seems like it's a lot harder to translate that sense of, multiple interpretation sort of levels onto the screen where things are kind of big and in your face, you know, so. Well, and uh, they were they, trying to pigeonhole it into yeah. a, a easy to sell package, you know, so when you try to pigeonhole something that's difficult to pigeonhole, <laughs> right. that segues us straight to the film adaptation. Doesn't yeah, it? well, so this is something you've studied, I guess, quite a bit um, in kind of the larger realm of, of fandoms and how successful uh, adaptations happen and sort of what can go wrong along the way. Um, so just in general, like I, I tried to, I watched the Golden Compass, you know, when it came out in theaters, I thought it was pretty good and all, 
but it wasn't like the book you know it's sort of its own thing uh obviously it didn't really pan out they didn't ever make the rest of the series and but but now on the other hand there is a bbc like mini series on in the works so that's promising um but can you just talk a little bit about like what you've turned up with respect to the golden compass film what happened there what they should have done differently yeah uh this is normally an hour long unto itself so i will distill down to the to the bits <laughs> that i think are most interesting um so yeah my phd work is on like the title is event film adaptation and fan management so i look at insanely popular texts uh with large fan bases that are all of a similar ilk. They're all kind of young adult fantasy type lit. Um, and the fi- the actual processes of how they get from book to film. And then I'm looking at how the filmmakers manage the fan bases in the adaptation process and how that management affects box office return. And the line I always give is, you know the answer to this. If you talk to your fans, you're going to make more money. But do filmmakers always talk to their fans? No. Um, so the stuff I was mainly looking at is how they involve the author, if they involve the author, how do they communicate that to the fandom, do they post updates or information on any kind of uh, social media or fan sites, do they work with fan site organizers to keep them in the loop or visit set or anything like that, just kind of managing those relationships. Um, so that's the research, and I used Golden Compass as one of my case studies because it had everything going for it. It had a $180 million budget. It was um, Chris Weitz was the director, and he's really well known for his literature background. He's got a lit degree from, I think, Cambridge, um, and he did a bunch of adaptations. He did that lovely uh, Nicholas Holt one about a boy, Nicholas Holt and uh, Hugh, Hugh Grant. I almost said Hugh Jackman. Hugh Grant. Um, <laughs> absolutely beautiful adaptation and very different from the text, but well handled, well received and all that. Um, he also did one of the Twilight films, and Twilight was, I worked on the set, so that was my main case study. So that's why I reference it a lot. Don't think I'm a Twihard. I just had a lot of access to it. Um, so yeah, with Golden Compass, it had Chris White's, it had a huge budget, um, it had New Line Cinema, who is the studio behind The Lord of the Rings, was behind it. Incredible cast, Nicole Kidman, Daniel Craig, Kathy Bates, Freddie Highmore, Ian McKellen. Uh, you know, stunning. Excuse yeah. me. And then it all went wrong. Um, so about eight weeks, I think it was, before the theatrical release, New Line Cinema came to Chris White's and said, you need to make this be a good Christmas film. So it needs to have a happy ending, and you need to get rid of all of the atheist undertones. Right. Right. So a happy ending it does not have, as you all know. Um, and atheist undertones, I always kind of try to walk the line with this one, because... I think we can all agree it's not preaching atheism, right? It's not singing it from the rooftops or anything. It's like asking C.S. Lewis to remove Christianity from Narnia. It is the core of the story. It's what holds it together. It's what strings it along. But it's not like it's preachy, you know? Mm -hmm. So removing atheism removes the through line of your film. It removes the core of your film. It removes the momentum, the pace, the depth, all of that. So when I did finally get to see it, it just felt jumpy. And they did go back and film some pickups um, to make it flow together, but it, it just felt like there was something missing. And I later found out they cut 43 minutes of the finished film. Like most films are 90 to 120 minutes. 
So if you're cutting 43 minutes, that is a huge amount of your final film. And this was eight weeks before theatrical release, which meant that all of the visual effects had been done, all of the music, all of the grading, like all of that was done. That is millions upon millions of dollars. So it was a huge, huge thing to change. And Chris Weitz was under contract to help promote the film. So any press or publicity you see around the release of the film is super positive. You know, it's an absolutely beautiful film, excellent cast, like all that stuff is true. He doesn't say anything about the jacking in of the story that they did. Um, As soon as he was out of that contract, he threw everybody under the bus. He got on Twitter and he actually used the word cluster, hmm, but put symbols in for the hmm part. He's like, uh, I think this was actually when he was announced as the new Moon director. I mix up my timelines because the new, the Twilight fandom was really upset. Like, you're gonna have this guy that totally messed up Golden Compass come and work with our book. <laughs> so he basically backed away from Golden Compass and was like, that was a cluster. I had nothing to do with that. Here's what happened, and he threw everybody under the bus. Um, so it was, it was quite revealing. There was also a lot of pressure from the Catholic Church at that time um, to ban this movie. And I think that's what New Line Cinema reacted to. Um, I think they were just scared at a Christmas release film for the Catholic Church to say, don't go to this. So they cut the religious elements, but there weren't really any, you know? And everybody stands by the fact that that material is gone, it's been destroyed. But you know it's somewhere. Like, I still want to see that 43 minutes and and see what this film could have been. Because I do think it was stunning. I think the performances were great, but it really lacked depth. And we lost a lot of the small, beautiful moments, I think, of these characters developing because it was probably considered to be some sort of a spiritual shift or slant, you know? So when you look at box office numbers, that's the stuff I'm really interested in. The U.S. box office return for Golden Compass was around $76 million, and that's how much Twilight made on its opening weekend. So, like, it should have made more than that. And, and worldwide, it made a fair bit more, 273 um but i think twilight made something like 679 harry potter's making the eight to nines you know so it it should have done more with the amount of following that it had it had similar book sales at its height it has a similar following you know this i feel like the the metaphor here that leaps to mind is like this is like what the church in the story does to children and their demons right It, it severs them and it cuts them apart and it sounds like that's what they did with this finished movie where they just cut the, the soul right out of it. And that's left. such a great reference that I never put together, but that's exactly what it is. They well, just go with it. I mean, I, that, that just sort of crystallized as you were talking about that. I was like, oh, man, this is that's that's how sad it is, too. It's like that shocking and that heartbreaking. What? Oh, man. But, yeah, I do hope that somewhere and sort of doubt that it can't be the case that somewhere out there is that you know lost footage and and somebody's got it and is is keeping it hidden for now but and with uh, the the use of pullman they they asked philip pullman for his input early on and he wrote the rules he um, made a videotape of of people he thought should be lyra and and tried to be quite involved and i think he tried too hard to be involved and it sounds like they just kind of pushed him away and said you know we've got this pullman which is such a shame. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that it was made in 2007, and like Facebook happened in 2004. The iPhone was 2006. Twitter was 2006. So this is right at the beginning of really being able to tap into your audience and react to what they say and notice what they say. 
excuse me, whereas now, if our favorite author, Phil Pullman, J.K. Rowling, whoever, said, I hate what they're doing, there'd be a boycott immediately, you know? Like, there would be storm in the castle, petitions being signed, and there wasn't the opportunity or ability or organization to do that. And this also fell, it's my last thing, <laughs> there's so many things. And yeah. then this also fell into the window of when a ton of this kind of fantasy was being pushed out. Yeah. Um, after the success of Lord of the Rings, which was 2001 to 2003, and the success of the Harry Potter films, studios basically went to their vaults and said, what do we already own right. that's really similar to this that we can push out real fast and capitalize on this audience? And that's how the Susan Cooper adaptation happened, which I'm not going to talk about because <laughs> I'm going to vomit on my keyboard if you make me talk about that. But that is also part of this lecture. So I'm sure I'll do that at some point for the um, Mythgard Miscellany or a symposium. Okay. Uh -huh. But uh, yeah, so there are all these 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 things coming out that were of a similar ilk and some of them were okay none of them were stellar and yeah. some were terrible <laughs> well i mean it really does seem to matter how you approach it right if your intention is simply like let's quickly you know capitalize on this market well that's not going to give you the kind of soulful you know work of of love that really i mean the the Tolkien movies, right? The Peter Jackson movies, although they aren't like super necessarily um, faithful in every respect, they re they represent like a deep engagement with the story, right? And like they really liked it and they really crafted it. And, and they that's... really pushed themselves as fans, you know, yeah. like to um, Peter Jackson dressed as a hobbit, uh, <laughs> carried around a copy of, of Lord of the Rings. They could quote full sections from the Samarillion on the director's commentary of the extended editions. Like their yeah. knowledge was so vast and deep that you, you respected them. So like, I mean, I know there's a huge divide even within Mythgard and, and Signum of whether they were good or not. I personally am a huge fan. I think they were beautifully adapted, stunningly done, done with care. I understand there's a lot of things missing and some changes, but it made for a wonderful film. And I'm perfectly fine enjoying that um, that that side of an adaptation. Oh, I'm treading on thin ice here. This is a, another conversation. <laughs> no, it's, but I see. I think that part of what they do those movies is direct people to the books. Like then they can re-release the books in like glossy editions, and people like pick up the books and read them. And I think anything that gets people to read the books is like great. So ultimately, the books stand on their own, and the movies are there, and in many cases bring you into that pre-existing uh -huh. world. And that's actually what happened with Susan Cooper's when uh, Dark is Rising came out the movie again. Um, the fans boycotted the film, and it was the first time in like thirty years the books were back on bestseller lists. Yeah, yeah. They were like, don't go see the movie. Go buy somebody the book. Go buy yourself a new copy. And all of a sudden, it was back. So that side of it. And my big thing now with adaptation, and if um, you watch. Corey and I talk about our reaction to the Tolkien trailer that we just did uh, oh. two nights ago. We were talking about this, that my big thing with adaptation now is just trying to leave your, your torches and your pitchforks at home. You know, <laughs> go into it with an open mind, recognize that this is going to be a different medium. They will have changed things. Try to not throw things at the screen immediately. Like, I really had to sit with Harry Potter, each one, uh -huh. and enjoy it for what it was, 
think about it for the next couple of days, figure out which bits were still pissing me off, and then throw those under the bus. <laughs> so it's not like you have to love it, but you have to take a moment and just realize that the film's going to be different. But that's also neat. You're seeing a really loved thing from a different perspective. And that's why I'm so excited for the BBC adaptation, which yeah. we don't know a ton about yet. Um, you know, the, the main thing they keep pushing is Lin-Manuel Miranda is in it. So that's fantastic. I know they've involved Pullman and it's BBC who has an excellent reputation for book to film adaptation and taking care of source material. So. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I am all a flutter just thinking about the, the amount of attention that this brings back to the original series, you know, alone, but also like the quality of this adaptation looks like it'll be really top notch. And I don't even know when it's supposed to release, but I think it's sometime this year. I'm looking that... it up while we're talking. I'm like, Ooh, yeah, let me pull all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I, I check in from time to time, like, is it out yet? Is it out yet? And it's always kind of vague, like, you know, sometime 2019, maybe who knows, but they're supposedly already, uh, filming the the sequel series, so that it's it's ongoing. Um, yeah, it's just 2019 on IMDb Pro. Okay. It doesn't have a release date. Oh, Tom Hooper is the director. That's shiny. Right. And Pullman wrote the novel. Jack Thorne also great reputation for the adaptation. Mm-hmm. I I know that. Well, he was. I know he was engaged in some way with the stage adaptation. Um, that it, Pullman that is like he wrote some stuff for that uh, I don't know if it was like any dialogue but just like materials to kind of go with and the stage adaptation I never got to see but I heard it was really cool um, I know that when he was a teacher Pullman would also write little plays um, like for his schools um, and then later adapted those into some of his earlier books mm-hmm. actually like um, I think the firework maker's daughter um, started as a, a play that he wrote to be performed at the school. Um, so he's definitely like interested in adaptation and mm. I think would be a great asset for anyone, you know, who was working on one to just like get his input. Yeah. And, and hopefully as the creator, you also recognize that this is a realm different than your <laughs> specialty realm. And it's very few writers that are capable of writing novels and scripts, you know, there's such different arts so involving the author in terms of story, I think, is a no-brainer. You absolutely need to do that because they'll provide the depth and the background, but also the audience. You know, I mean, you're going to follow your favorite author if they say it's wonderful. Um, but also being able to have the opportunity to, to change the text and be inspired by different things. And, you know, I know the, the Golden Compass BBC one is still filming, and I'm quite hoping to get into that. So I'll keep you posted on that. Yeah. But there's some neat stuff. I mean, Ruth Wilson is involved, James McAvoy, Anne-Marie Duff. Like, it's it's excellent as I'm scrolling through this. I mean, James McAvoy as Lord Asriel. Oh. <laughs> so, so when, when, if and when you get on the set, like, wh- what do you do? How do you, how do you manage to do that? And what's that like to be on the set of a, a big film? Well, I don't know what this one's going to be purely because it's a different kind of structure. So um, somebody I worked with on a different film, um, know somebody that's that's how this works really somebody knows somebody who knows somebody so I sent her some stuff today that she's sending on to the people there but the nice thing about the BBC production that I've heard about is they're including an educational element as part of the production so the production studio actually has a classroom so they're apparently bringing students into the space to see something being filmed and then hear a talk about it which is why I put myself forward I'm like please let me come talk about this yeah yeah 
Um, so we'll see. The, the other stuff um, was really a lot of chance and lucky circumstance and behaving myself and being persistent but professional. So like Twilight was totally chance. A uh, friend of a friend was second assistant director um, and said, oh, I'm working on an adaptation. You know, you're welcome to come to set if you want. And I'd never heard of Twilight. I had never read any of the books. So I read three books in three days because the fourth book wasn't out yet and was only invited on set for one day. But the first day I was on set, we were hiding under a tent and it was pouring sideways and I struck up a conversation with the guy next to me and he ended up being the executive producer. And he's like, <laughs> you want to come back tomorrow? I'm like, yep, that'd be great. <laughs> ended up coming for a week. And by the second day, I was sitting next to the producers in Video Village with cans on my head, watching the production, asking them questions, taking notes. They knew exactly what I was doing. They were perfectly happy and open to share with me. It was great. <laughs> so I had tons of access to that. And then once you get on something like that, it is a little bit easier because you can name drop. Yeah. So I started working for a small Welsh production company. And the woman that runs that had a lot of uh, links within the UK industry because she grew up in the industry. Her mom and her dad were both professionals. Um, so she hooked me up with a few other contacts. I said, I worked on Twilight doing this research. I'd be interested in working with yours. And nine times out of ten, they say no. Um, but the one that said yes was Captain America. So, okay. <laughs> I got to go work on that. And those are the only two really big ones I've worked on, Captain America and Twilight. So the name dropping is over. Um, but then after that, I actually went away and worked with this production company for nine years. And that's where I really learned my craft of, of script editing and story development and things like that. I mean, that seems like the way to do it, right? Like, hands-on. and oh, but totally. that's, that's great advice, I guess, for anyone who's like you know a, a major fan or interested in this kind of scholarship like you said just to be kind of t striking up conversations but being on your best behavior and sort of like ha walking that line um name dropping when necessary but also just kind of like listening you know a lot and yeah that's that's exactly what it is just being aware and not harassing anybody and being very respectful and not stealing stuff, you know, like <laughs> some pretty basic things. Because uh, the Twilight thing, like there were always fans on the periphery trying to take pictures and trying to get closer. And that's how you do not get invited back, you know, so you've, you've got to be careful about that. But before that, too, I would also say if anybody's thinking about this, like the best thing you can start doing is actually picking up a camera, starting to talk to student filmmakers and ask if you can help. You know, hold a boom, which is the sound bar with the fuzzy thing on the end of it. Hold a boom for an afternoon because just being around all of that, I learned so much. Like I learned more on three days of a short film shoot than I did in three months of studying film because yeah. it's lingo and it's the people. Like I finally saw what the gaffer did and what the best boy does. And I learned how to do certain things with Kit that I would not have been able to do on like Twilight or Captain America. So I better mess it up on the student film before I'm on something big where I will embarrass myself and never get a job again, you know? Um, and like a friend of mine, who's a, an executive at BBC, her advice is always take the job you can get. So her first job was making safety videos at British steel because every major corporation has an in-house production studio to make training videos and things like that. So she learned everything there, and now she runs BBC Four. Like, whoa! Right. So don't put your nose up at opportunities. My first job was answering a Craigslist ad. A guy needed help on a Saturday for casting, so I sat in a Starbucks and I reviewed scripts and uh, resumes. Well, this is something Pullman talks about too when he says 
you know, he studied literate English, you know, at, at college, university. And then, you know, when that was done, he sat down and was like, okay, so now I'm a writer. And he started to write his, you know, first novel. And he's like, I don't know how to do this. Like, where do I put the camera? That's kind of how he talks about it. Like the first major kind of illumination that he had was like, oh my gosh, I have to know like what the perspective that I'm going for is. Like, how much am I in this character's head? How much am I just seeing what's going on? You know, and apparently I haven't been able to find it. You know, it's very hard to find those, those early couple novels of his are apparently just like really not good <laughs> like he has like disowned them he like doesn't want them to exist or something but um i'm gonna back, track down a copy someday even if you go back to the first harry potter you see that um, writers get better the more they write so it, it gets more sophisticated as it goes on and yeah absolutely i love that you said the i hadn't heard that about pullman that he looked he was asking himself where the camera goes yeah. because that's the main thing you hear with films that have to do an adaptation as well. Where's the lens and who and what is the lens? Yeah. Because it, you can't have everything. It's just not possible. So for Harry Potter, Harry is the lens. He is the through line of everything. So yes, we lost certain story elements and you'll have bits that don't have Harry in it, but whatever's happening in that bit affects Harry's storyline. You know, he's the reason that's going forward. Um, I also had a conversation with the guy on Captain America about this. Because I was like, how do you do something like Avengers? Like, you have tons of leading characters in one film. And he said, you, you choose your lens. Uh, and I said, oh, so Iron Man? He goes, no. Nope. I said, watch it again, Captain America. Huh. And when you watch it again, because Captain America's not really big, you know, in, in my mind, for Avengers. Right. But when you watch it, he's the one driving the action forward. He's mm -hmm. the one that makes discoveries. He's the one that pulls people together. He's the one that challenges expectations and you're like oh <laughs> clever yeah. yeah i love that philip pullman was doing that to himself what's my lens here what yeah. am i looking at how's the story going to be told that's such a cool way to spin it and the only other thing i know about pullman with respect to film is that he seems to really like the old spaghetti western kind of period because he yeah. takes the name of one of the actors to give to uh, lee scoresby like lee's first name lee comes from some, I forget the actor's last name, but uh, an actor in those in those films. Um, so yeah, Pullman, he, he seems to have, you know, he's a very cultured guy, obviously. He just yeah. like knows a lot of different stuff. Um, but among the things he knows seems to be quite a bit about film, actually, you know, something he's yeah, thought and, and what a skill to be able to tap into that. You know, he's not just a fan. He's like, what makes this work? Why do I like this? And that's what he's using. That's impressive. Yeah, well, so... I, to talk a little bit about fandoms in this era then, like since social media, since people have, you know, phones at all times and they're always kind of connected, how, how do you kind of go about uh, liaising successfully with a, with a fandom if you're kind of trying to, I don't know, bring them in in a, you know, a, a limited fashion so that they feel involved or something like that? What, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, again, this is, I mean, five years of my life is researched on this, so I don't think I'll sum it up in two minutes, but, uh, <laughs> and it will 100% depend on the project, it will depend on the author, if you're working with a recluse, if you're working with a 14-year-old writer, if you're working with a businessman who's changed fields, you know, so it so much depends on the story that I think you're given about the production as well. You know, J.K. Rowling, we've got 
her background as a single mother, um, you know, writing this thing, the book being rejected like 27 times or whatever, and then finally picked up. That's a story into itself. So there's something you can work with there in terms of developing that into the film adaptation. Practices is what I was really looking at. And so much of it just seems like common sense. You know, it's mostly about like communication, working with the people who are influencers, um, trying to be as careful and authentic as you can, but without crippling your own creative process. Because I, I definitely think films can be adapted that do not have to cater to their audience. You can change things to make it a better story because maybe it works differently. Like Shawshank Redemption. Mm. That's a short story from Stephen King. That's an excellent film that's quite different from King's short story. But you have somebody who was inspired by that and turned it into a stunning piece of work based on this small thing. Um, so yeah, just finding kind of the bits that you're going to focus in on and, and treating that well. Twilight was obviously my case study because I had so much access to it. And with them, man, they were smart. <laughs> First of all, they were absolute geeks in the field. And this is very much like Peter Jackson. They read everything. They knew everything. They were quoting stuff under their breath on the sidelines, not in front of fans, not trying to get any street cred that most fans don't know. You know, like things that were like a footnote on a secondary interview that Stephanie Meyer gave before the books were published. They knew. <laughs> And I was so impressed by that. So, like, they clearly did their research. So that was the stuff off camera. But then that means when they're actually talking to fans, because the producers did invite the owners of the biggest Twilight fan sites onto set just for one day. Um, and they invited them on to interview the cast and crew to take pictures, you know, kind of stroke their egos, you know, making them feel very important and everything. But they could hold their own in that conversation because they knew everything. Whereas with Susan Cooper's Dark is Rising, in an interview, one of the actors was said, this is a series. Aren't you excited that you'll, you could be back to do four more films? And he said, it's a series? I might have to do this again? Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's and if like, you're a fan, that's not what you want to hear. Right. Um, yeah, that, that's the opposite end of the spectrum, I guess. Well, I uh, think fan, fan speak, the language of the fan, is a, a big deal. I think honoring the original text and I mean, the Twilight creators might not have been the biggest fans that they showed themselves to be. I mean, they were like mid-40s men obsessed with this teenage vampire story. They absolutely might have been giant fans, but they might not have been. But they certainly made it look like they were giant fans. They did everything on the surface that you ought to do to take care of that fandom, treat them well, give them information, keep them involved, but keep it controlled. So they worked with, like, the biggest Twilight Facebook group, and they didn't start their own. They worked with one that already existed, and they released exclusive content to them. And that content was gold to the people that ran that page because nobody else has it. Yeah. So they weren't going to do anything to piss off the filmmakers because they wanted more information. So that gave the filmmakers a little bit of control over that fan reaction. Um, Lord of the Rings did the same thing. I mean, we didn't have any of this social media back when that was made. Um, but there was the Lord of the Rings Online, like still one of the biggest Lord of the Rings fan sites ever. Um, and those guys connected because they kept trying to visit set and crash set. So they kept getting escorted off by security. <laughs> and eventually Peter Jackson was like, these are our people. Let's let's meet them. One of them ended up getting a job as a PA. Um, they were all invited to like the after party at the Oscars and the premiere in Wellington. So like they became part of the family. And that gave the filmmakers 
control over the information the fans were getting because those guys were not going to do anything to screw up that relationship. But it also meant the fans were getting really authentic information, not a fuzzy picture from the sidelines that somebody grabbed as they were running off set. You know, <laughs> it was an actual studio shot yeah. of the thing the filmmaker wanted you to see. So I guess the last question I'd have about that sort of thing is, is your work with um, Lotro, uh, the, the video game, right? The adaptation. Um, Corey Olson always talks about how he thinks it's like the coolest, most interesting, thoughtful adaptation of Tolkien that he's seen. Um, what did you get to work on with that? And, and what was that like? Um, I don't know the game well at all. But. Neither do I, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I was there purely as an observer to look at adaptation. So I, I didn't know the community around this when I had the opportunity. It was purely from the fact of, this is a Tolkien book. How did you work with Tolkien's text? Okay. You know? So that's where I was coming from. Um, what it turned into was uh, a lot of fanboying and a lot of fangirling. We just geeked out because, again, they knew everything. They had done their research. Excuse me. Um I was very impressed with what was on everybody's desk. So like most of them had copy of uh, Tom Shippey's Tolkien works. So they were clearly, he's like one of the premier Tolkien scholars. So they were clearly referencing Tolkien research as well as the original texts. And they had to work very closely with Tolkien Enterprises. Um, that's the company that you know controls all of the IP for Tolkien. So at the end of every day, whatever they had worked on, they send to Tolkien Enterprises, and every morning they get back a batch of information as well. So there'll be notes on it. And they said most of the time it comes back no problem whatsoever because they put so much research into it before they make it that there's no harm usually. So I was like, so what has come back? Uh, and they said the only thing that's come back was chocolate was for sale in one of the shops in one of the villages. And Tolkien Enterprises said, no, chocolate doesn't exist in Middle-earth. Who knew? Um, and that, what was the other one? Oh, the other one was a programming thing. They couldn't figure out how to uh, get uh, one of the characters onto a horse, so they just had to reprogram it as horse pants. So the, the character puts on horse pants. Isn't <laughs> <laughs> that cracking me up? Um, and my, as I said, my cousin's one of the designers, so he took me on a tour of Middle-earth, digital Middle-earth, and we went through all the places that you're going to recognize and the, the soft allusions to the Peter Jackson work. You know, they're not inspired at all because, of course not. Of course not. They're not inspired by that. But if it reminds you of these things, that's not a bad thing. So we went through all of that. And then he took me to a, a vast corner um, and there was a house down a lane and the lane was the street that he grew up on, and the house at the end of it was the house that I spent 15 Thanksgivings at growing up as his cousin. Oh. And he put it in the game, and it, it looks absolutely appropriate. It, you know, it, should, it fits in. But I love that he put his little signature in the story as well. So you have that passion, you have that depth of connection with the thing that they're creating from a personal level, a professional level, a literary level. And when somebody is that level, you know it's going okay, you know? Yeah. yeah. That's really cool. That sort of brings us full circle then, like, from, you know, reading about other places, going to visit them, to you take this thing that is so, you know, part of you, and, and you put it into the the thing you're creating. Yeah, that's yeah. that's lovely. Gosh. Well, that makes me really want to go and at least look at, you know, Lord of the Rings online a little more closely. and kind of learn from what they've done because it does sound super interesting. It's well, pretty okay. incredible. 
most of those original creators aren't there anymore because you know they, they move on to different games um, and I think that's really interesting too they spent so much of their life committing to this one thing and he's three games on now he's working on something totally different and I was like was that hard to walk away and he was like well in one respect but I also really enjoy playing it and when I was working on it it was hard to enjoy playing on it because I was so critical like oh that makes sense yeah. Like I can't play Twilight ever again. Like I was, I was uh, too much work on it. You know. <laughs> so thank God my case study wasn't Pullman or or Harry Potter or something because I wouldn't want to lose my relationship with those books. Yeah. All right. Well, I know I've taken a lot of time, um, but thanks so much for talking and sharing some of your uh, hard-earned wisdom on this stuff. Um, I look forward to seeing where you go with uh, the Mythgard stuff and the Signum course. I hope that goes well. Uh, and I'm sure we'll be in touch. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, keep an eye on Signum. I'm pretty sure some pretty cool stuff's going to be coming out in the next few weeks and months for Signum and Mythgard. Excellent. Yay. All right. Thanks, Thanks again. Yeah. Bye. Thank you again, Dr. Maggie Park. No news this week. Uh, just a few more themes for the imaginary video game adaptation. First is ceiling space, then manganese titanium, fearsome tartars, and the cloud pines. Thanks for listening.